Xtox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing a first-of-its-kind treatment for ALS and the world's first RSV vaccine. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevic. Thanks for coming today. I'm going to start us off with a story today about uh, the approval of the world's very first RSV vaccine. The FDA has approved the world's very first RSV vaccine, and the vaccine is called Arexv. It's approved for adults aged 60 years and older, and it was developed by Glasgow Smith Klein or GSK. So this is a pretty groundbreaking um, development, and um, the vaccine actually has a long history of development itself. It's been, I think, decades in the making. And so finally, we have uh, the very first RSV vaccine. So GSK says that this vaccine will be available first for older adults before this year's RSV season. And that usually begins before the winter months. So in late fall and in winter, and it coincides with the flu season. And uh, you might have also heard about the triple demic uh, in the last couple of years, which consisted of uh uh, COVID-19, influenza, the flu, as well as RSV uh, in terms of the three different respiratory viruses that were in active circulation during flu season uh, for the past couple of years. So RxV for uh, RSV, it's administered through a single intramuscular injection. And uh, so RSV is a highly contagious virus. It's a respiratory virus, which can cause infections such as bronchiolitis um, or pneumonia in people of all ages. However, older people and very young children are most susceptible to complications from RSV infection. The virus is transmitted through droplets or direct contact, and it infects uh, the epithelial cells of the respiratory mucosa, leading to lower respiratory tract infections, uh, and again, uh, bronchiolitis or pneumonia. And symptoms of RSV infection, they're typically mild for the general population, um, and they include flu or cold-like symptoms such as coughing, sneezing, runny nose, fever, and wheezing. And so, um, again, while most people do recover within a couple of weeks from RSV infection, um, like I mentioned, infants and older adults are at a higher risk of severe complications. And according to the CDC, um, RSV causes 60,000 to 120,000 hospitalizations and 6,000 to 10,000 deaths among adults 65 years of age and older in the U.S., every year. And so the approval of the very first RSV vaccine is a very important public health achievement to prevent a disease which can be life-threatening and reflects the FDA's continued commitment to facilitating the development of safe and effective vaccines for use in the U.S. And this was according to Peter Marks, who is the director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, or the CDER. So as I mentioned, Arexv is approved for older adults who are 60 years of age and older. 
um, and it's indicated to prevent lower respiratory tract disease or LRTD caused by RSV. And um, again, this age group is at a higher risk of developing severe complications if infected with the virus, and it can lead to conditions like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD, asthma, as well as chronic heart failure. Now, the FDA's approval of Arexvi was based on GSK's rigorous phase three clinical trial. Um, and in the trial, there, are around, there were around 12,500 participants who received Arexvi and the same number received placebo. Results from the trial showed that Arexvi significantly reduced the risk of developing RSV-associated LRTD by 82.6% and the risk of developing severe RSV-associated LRTD by 94.1%. In addition, the RSV vaccine was found to be 94.6% effective in older adults who had at least one pre-existing medical condition of interest, such as certain uh, cardiorespiratory and endocrine me uh, metabolic conditions. Um, and uh, so the studies are ongoing and um, for, again, like this age group was targeted because they are more susceptible to complications from RSV, but it is expected that um, expanded approval will come shortly for other age groups, uh, particularly again for young children who are also susceptible to complications from RSV. So, so far, the cost of the RSV vaccine has not been disclosed by GSK, but GSK executives have suggested that the price could be uh, in the range of uh, $60 to $185 per dose, uh, which reflects the prices of their influenza and shingles vaccines, uh, respectively, actually. And of course, uh, GSK is saying that it's working with insurance companies to try to make the RSV vaccine accessible and eligible for reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of work on developing, uh, you know, an RSV vaccine, and I think it's been 60 years in the making, if I'm not mistaken. And I was reading something about how um, <laughs> they were first, uh, you know, developing this vaccine, and then a couple of decades down the line, they started targeting targeting the wrong protein. So they actually were targeting the F protein on the RSV virus, which is fine, but when it was bound to like a human cell. So they were trying to target that interaction. And that was kind of like a mistaken kind of a thing that they did. So uh, I guess that was a setback there, but it's really great to finally see an RSV vaccine come to fruition. And it's going to definitely be helping um, the, you know, the most susceptible groups um, that can succumb or uh, basically be a victim to, to complications from RSV. And several other companies actually are working on their own RSV vaccines. And these include Pfizer, as well as Moderna, which is developing an mRNA-based um, RSV vaccine. Also forgot to mention that the GSK vaccine is a protein-based vaccine. So it targets, uh, I think I just mentioned the F protein on the RSV virus. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this pretty groundbreaking approval. Did you, were you aware of RSV as much as let's say other viruses like influenza and then of course COVID or SARS-CoV-2? Well, I think, you know, everyone knows about influenza. It's just, it's the flu, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like a science word for the flu, <laughs> I guess. So 
Yeah, I think um, I've definitely been more aware of, of uh, vaccine development for respiratory diseases once COVID started. Yeah. Um, so it was then that I've heard about RSV, but before COVID, I have never heard about RSV. There we go. Yeah, yeah and um, yeah, quite interesting. I'm I'm wondering how it will be integrated integrated into like mm. you know community care and stuff, and will it be given, um, you know, with influenza vaccines? I think they're also studying to see if the RSV vaccine can be given together with influenza vaccines. So yeah, it's it's great news. I was not really familiar with it, to be honest with you, maybe until I started working at Xtox and now I get all the inside scoop about the latest viruses. But um, yeah, I, I was wondering when you were telling the story about how they were targeting the wrong protein at first, like if that was sort of a genuine mistake or, you know, was, was, was anyone like held accountable for that? Like it got me thinking about the process mm -hmm. of developing vaccines. Mm -hmm. And when, when something is like so much time has been wasted, like, you know, I, I really wonder what like the fallout from that was. Yeah. I don't know, like the complete inside story there, but uh, I think it was a, definitely a genuine mistake. Mm -hmm. And that was just like one of kind of the obstacles and roadblocks, like many groups were, or were, have been working on it, but it seems like this was one maybe aspect that maybe all groups were doing. Maybe they had similar sequences and they were working with. So yeah, it was very interesting to read about that. So um, I think apart from that mistake, there were also other um, complexities associated with developing the vaccine. So that's why it took almost, uh, 60 years. Wow. That's quite a, quite, you know, when we compare it to the, however, yeah, the COVID it took to, to, to yep. make the COVID vaccine and this, I almost wonder if like, and we talked about this before, but like, if there's that inherent trustworthiness in like, mm. you know, 60 years versus one year, um, or however many years, like, you know, is there a point in time where, uh, people will feel more safe taking a vaccine if they know it's been development in development for that long. Um, and yeah, I wonder if like there'll be any resistance to it just because vaccines are a whole different ballgame than they used to be. Um, yeah. But hearing 60 years, like it, it makes me think like, wow, this has been like such a long time coming, but also it must be, it must be good if it's, if it's been oh, in, the, in the making, but maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Hopefully. And and the thing is that like the whole journey from, you know, inception to now it's been 60 years. But if if you take a look at, um, you know, the actual study of the vaccine and evaluation and clinical trials, those are all the same time points, like mm -hmm. a year or two years or so and or six months or whatever follow up they do or whatever their endpoints are in clinical trials and the same processes were applied for the COVID vaccines as well. So even though it you know, it might've taken 60 years to develop. It's not that they had that prototype and they were testing it for 60 years. No, mm -hmm. not at all. So, um, the clinical trial process is, is exactly the same for, let's say a COVID vaccine that only took a couple of months to develop versus let's say an RSV vaccine that had a lot of other issues and hurdles and also the technologies that we have now. Right. And then also the lessons learned from the COVID-19 vaccines, I think, all of that combined um, and led to probably this RSV vaccine to finally be pushed out. But uh, yeah, if we're talking about clinical testing, um, it's a very rigorous process. And uh, so for COVID, obviously, it was a public health emergency. And so 
um, there, there was a lot of focus on, you know, focused uh, research and uh, to in development for that. But yeah, the clinical trial processes are exactly the same. So for the RSV vaccine, again, it was probably had whether it was a three, six month or one year endpoint, um, or looking at different endpoints, that's all similar between the vaccines or any drug that's evaluated to ensure safety and efficacy. Um, so yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, that's that's really good to know. Like, I think that's mm-hmm. such a good point to to make and to sort of clear up with vaccines because I think like you know we what, what the public sees is so different from like mm-hmm. what what you know the people working on it see and they know how rigorous the process is. And I think like if you told other people what you told me, then maybe we'd have a different outlook on mm-hmm. um, on like the COVID vaccine, for example, because. Um, yeah. That, yeah, that's, it's, it's very enlightening to me, honestly. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just wish that like the information was out there, um, more or made more clear to people. Cause, um, you can't even fault people as well. Mm-hmm. Like if they're not in the field, you know, it's, it's hard for people to really grasp what's going on. And so, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, <laughs> a lot of vaccines and <laughs> I think, I think I, talking to somebody about it. And then, um, it was like, what another vaccine it's like vaccine fatigue, maybe going on, (laughs) but, um, we, I mean, you know, vaccines have essentially changed the world and continue to do so. So I think that's really what we should be focusing on and, uh, preventing and, uh, disease. Yeah. Preventable diseases. All right, let's move on to another story. And this is another approval, another kind of a landmark approval. So the FDA uh, last week granted accelerated approval to Biogen's Kelsody or Tefersen for the treatment of adult patients with ALS associated with a specific mutation in the superoxide dismutase 1 or SOD1 gene. And so Calsodi becomes the very first approved treatment to target a genetic cause of ALS. Calsodi is, and sorry, start that again. Calsodi is administered intrathecally by healthcare professionals that are experienced in conducting lumbar punctures. And the treatment requires three initial doses at 14 day intervals, followed by a maintenance dose every 28 days. And so Tefersen was first discovered or developed by Ionis Pharmaceuticals, and then Biogen licensed it from Ionis under a collaborative development and license agreement. So ALS um, is a severe neurodegenerative disorder, which is characterized by the progressive loss of neurons in the brain, brainstem, and spinal cord. The condition results in the deterioration and death of motor neurons, leading to quadriplegia and fatal respiratory failure. While the exact cause of uh, ALS or the causes of ALS are not fully understood, um, there is substantial research suggesting that mutations in the SOD1 gene may be linked to the development of the condition. And SOD1 is an antioxidant enzyme which protects cells from the harmful effects of superoxide radicals by catalyzing the dismutation of these radicals into oxygen and hydrogen peroxide. However, when there are mutations in the SOD1 gene, that can cause uh, the misfolding and aggregation of the SOD1 protein, which leads to an increase in superoxide radicals, which ultimately result in the death of motor neurons. Now, to date, over 200 mutations in the SOD1 gene have been associated with ALS. 
And so, um, again, this is a very, very groundbreaking uh, therapy and approval, or rather approval for a therapy that targets SOD1 mutations uh, specifically. And so calsodi um, contains tofersin, which is an antisense uh, oligonucleotide, which specifically targets the mRNA made from um, mutated SOD1 genes to prevent the formation, again, of those toxic, misfolded, um, misaggregated SOD1 proteins. And uh, so studies have shown that tofersin effectively reduces the concentration of plasma neurofilament light chain, which is a blood-based biomarker of axonal injury and neurodegeneration, as well as the cerebrospinal fluid SOD1 protein, which is an indirect measure of target engagement. And uh, so reduction in these two biomarkers in response to tofersin is believed to predict clinical benefit for patients. Now, in the U.S., uh, there are currently an estimated 16,000 to 32,000 individuals living with ALS, and worldwide, there are approximately 168,000 ALS patients, and only 2% of them are impacted by SOD1 mutations. Um, and so if we take a look at what the price may be for Kelsody, I don't think we have that information yet, but... Um, it's market value wise, it's expected to generate around $300 million for Biogen. And although Calsodi's market may be small, because we just, you know, mentioned that only 2% of people worldwide are impacted by SOD1 mutations, which this, um, therapy targets, um, it's, it's a successful launch is a significant milestone for Biogen's ALS drug pipeline on, in, on the whole, as it's likely to accelerate the research and development of other ALS drugs in the future. And, uh, yeah, so Biogen, again, it's, um, very focused on ALS research and developing ALS drugs. So this is uh, a very, uh, landmark approval for the company. So what are your thoughts on uh, this uh, new approval? Yeah, I think it's great that um, Biogen, which is, you know, they've made a name for themselves recently. I think I think it's great that they focused on like, a, I guess, a genetic type of a rare disease, knowing that the market potential will be yeah. so small and then questioning whether they will financially benefit that much from this drug. That didn't deter them. Instead, they wanted to release this drug, believing that it will advance ALS research and their pipeline as well in the future. So I think it's a really great move from them. Um, and I know that pharma companies developing rare diseases, they have a bunch of incentives you know, um, from the FDA too, yeah. to kind of help them um, in that endower, but yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like ALS is such a rare disease. And then this specific, um, subtype SOD, as you can call it, call it. Yeah. Yeah. This subtype only 2% of people with ALS have this. So yeah, it's quite, um, quite good news. So for example, like worldwide, you said there's 168,000 ALS patients. Mm -hmm. So if I calculate 2% of that, yeah, that is, yeah. yeah. So worldwide, there's only 3,360 patients with the SOD1 mm -hmm. mutation uh, reason for ALS. So, you know, th a little over 3,000 patients in the whole world mm -hmm. that this drug is for, right? So that Really puts that's it huge. Into perspective. Yeah, that's yeah. actually huge because um, 
you know, just a decade or a couple of decades ago, like I think we talked about this before there were not, you know, really, I mean, something like this, there, there, there was no incentive for drug companies to be developing therapies for rare diseases like this, like from a financial perspective, unfortunately. Right. But now because the FDA and other agencies have programs and then also, um, advocacy groups, patient and caregiver groups, like all of these groups and all of these uh, stakeholders coming together, um, working and partnering with drug companies, with regulatory agencies. I think this has really created and fostered a climate where we're now seeing so much development in the rare disease space. And I think it's so amazing to see that where I don't think we would have heard or even expected, you know, a therapy coming out for 3000 people worldwide. But again, it's about the bigger picture, of course, helping these patients and then setting the stage for development of, uh, like you're saying, um, of further therapies for other subtypes and other rare diseases. So I think it's, it's a great precedent and it's so great that we're moving in this direction and really focusing on rare diseases. Would you say this is a great example of like a personalized approach or like personalized medicine? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I mean, you're targeting a subtype, you know, patients that have this specific um, mutation. And so uh, firstly, these, you know, patients with ALS would have to be screened for the mutations to see if they're eligible for the therapy. So it's definitely um, a poster child for for personalized medicine and therapy. Yeah. All right, that's it for this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. And if you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.